EQ for me is about seeing not just the user, but the people in the process. And there's something really impactful about getting these very individual stories and that it's the kind of thing that when you see it, you can't unsee it. Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community for designers to grow their emotional intelligence. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Hannah Schenk. Hanna is the co-director of strategy for public interest technology at New America, where she works to develop the public interest technology field via research, storytelling, and hands-on projects. She is the co-author of Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology. In the private sector, Shank founded and ran Collective UX a user experience consultancy that works with startups, Fortune 500 companies, and governmental organizations to research and design human-centered products. We dive into the importance of developing a high EQ in the area of public interest technology to solve various human issues, the value of practicing empathy as it relates to individual stories and designing successful user journeys, and how emotional intelligence can serve as a guidepost to cultivate a meaningful and impactful career. Welcome, Hannah, to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So when we were chatting over email about what direction really to go into with emotional intelligence, I love, love, love something you said that emotional intelligence has been a guidepost for your career. And I'm a very visual person. <laughs> so upon you saying that, I'm envisioning you or at least your Twitter avatar that, that I knew of who you were sticking this guidepost in the ground and said, like, emotional intelligence this way, <laughs> not emotional <laughs> intelligence that way. But I'm curious, at what point in your career did you realize that investing in your emotional intelligence or EQ was necessary for you? I went through a lot of my career being the first of a certain flavor of person (laughs) um, at the organization that I was at. So when I became an information architect, I was the first information architect at the ad agency and I was on every single project. So of course, when you are a user experience designer or back in the day, an information architect, and you're in the room with, at that time, no product people, but project manager and engineer and all the other people on the project, I think even back in the day, it was very clear that my role was to be the emotionally intelligent person in the room, which is Mm -hmm. like a weird way to put it. But I think I hadn't, I didn't really thought about it until you asked about EQ. I would just say like, I'm the voice of the user. Everyone would be like, oh, that's interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Um, As I kind of reflect back on my career, I see that I always chose the route that would bring me closer to people. And the real 
change, I think, for me was the first time that I participated in user research, which sounds crazy, but I had gone along in my career for like maybe 10 years designing wireframes and doing all the UX stuff without ever having any client who had the budget for research or was interested in using it or incorporating into the project. And then I finally, I worked on a project where we were designing a digital strategy for a healthcare company. And it was a nonprofit West Coast based healthcare HMO. And we did interviews. We wanted to track the user journey for people who had intense health experiences. And we knew that we had to get a certain segment of like people who are cancer patients, people who were working with Alzheimer patients or were caregivers for Alzheimer mm-hmm. patients. And I think that that was the first time where we're participating in these interviews and listening to these stories and the people we were interviewing would cry and we would cry. It was a two person team and the person that I was doing the interviews with, we're going to cry in every interview and let's just, <laughs> let's just acknowledge that. Um, that's, what this is. that's what this project is. Everyone's going to cry all the time. Um, and that's part of the process. So mm-hmm. I think that that was for the first time, it just really brought home for me the way that like, these are people at the end of the day, and these are people who are experiencing the worst day of their lives. And how do we make that? So obviously you're not going to like put a delighter in there. It's not a question of like, oh, and here's a parking space. How wonderful. Um, But just can you make the worst day of their lives a little easier or a little less worse? And putting myself in that role, I think was a real eye opener for me that like, oh, there's actually a whole other level to take this work. In that moment where your teammate gave everyone permission to cry and really acknowledge that. I'm curious if you felt a weight lift or like where my mind is going is so often calling out what is so obvious that clearly everyone's thinking, especially from a a lens of, of emotion, since in the workplace, it's often so taboo to be like, okay, so now we're just going to cry in this part of the process. And we're just going to normalize this. And this is after we wireframe, we cry <laughs> or w- whatever the process may be. But I feel like in so many ways, it's taboo. And so I'm curious if there was a shift in the way that you all maybe collaborated or was able to gather insights or so on upon calling out what was clearly already happening. There was a moment where we acknowledged it and said, this is what's happening and, you know, this is how it's going to be. And I think that it did sort of release things on the project. And then for this particular project, we also had a day of synthesis with the client where we were sharing these stories and they cried. There were several women who were on the team and some of the stories had to do with childbirth or um, the neonatal unit, some child-related emergency. And I think that everybody on the team, it's interesting because I think like since the pandemic, we've seen more of like, oh, you can you can be a person at work. <laughs> That's really started to change for people. But I feel like mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, you were generally not allowed to be a person. And we had to give people permission in that room. Even like the clients wanted to share their own stories of, you know, when you hear a story and you relate to it and your response is, now I need to tell you my story. So they wanted to tell their stories of when they'd been 
to the emergency room. And I think that it was really a signal shift for that project. Unfortunately, the project didn't then like, it wasn't then like we all joined hands and it was smooth sailing. (laughs) There were a lot of fights, but it was pretty transformational for me career-wise. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious from your perspective, how you define EQ and what that means to you and what it's really meant as this guidepost of your career. EQ for me is about seeing not just the user, but the people in the process. And there's something really impactful about getting these very individual stories and that it's the kind of thing that when you see it, you can't unsee it. And I guess I would define it as people have EQ, you know it when you see it. But I think it's also a little bit the ability to, if you think of sort of the user, we often think of the user as this group, like this sort of mass of humanity, but being able to see the individual grains. That was a weird analogy that just <laughs> went. We're into, here for it. We're directions. here for it. I'm a visual person. So I see each person as this little grain. So we, we love it. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so it's the ability to to see the individual grains but also to see it in a specific way. So it's not just about getting individual grades through the Rube Goldberg device of whatever system you're designing, but doing so in a way that takes into account that they're people. Mm -hmm. The underlying tone of what you're talking about too is empathy and also compassion. It's really challenging when you're on a project and uh, there's already classified personas. Hopefully, maybe you're doing research when you get to actually interview people. But I'm curious from your perspective or your experience, what are ways to, we can either build on this grain metaphor, (laughs) to to really see people as people in the process when designing? If you're on the front lines doing the research, I think it's very easy to see the people in the process because you meet them. The field has evolved in so many interesting ways since I've been in it. And in some ways, it should be easier than ever to see the individual people now because you can, you know, you see people moving in different directions through a site. We have all of these ways of parsing data that we didn't used to have where we can get a lot clearer on who people are and where they go and what they do. I think that the field has also, particularly public interest technology, is starting to master the concept of having the stakeholders and the people in charge walk in the shoes of the people that they're serving. There is really nothing that helps bring home who these people are for. There's this famous, in public interest technology, there's this famous Mm -hmm. story of the VA, the Veterans Association, and redesigning Basically, nothing works at the VA, but the case management (laughs) system and that part of what had to happen in order to get the political capital to do that project was that the top leadership at the VA needed to understand what it was like for veterans applying for health insurance. And so the team went to a library and made a video of a veteran trying to apply to get on for VA benefits And that was a life-changing video to watch that for a lot of the leadership. They just had never seen it before. And I think that for that team in particular, like they could never look at what they were doing without thinking about 
the individual veterans behind that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So really bringing to light what makes us human and what are ways that we can really, instead of just viewing everyone as numbers or groups, but then how can we bring forth individual experiences to switching gears a little bit? I'm curious what you have personally done in your career to develop or grow your emotional intelligence. I don't know that I've done anything thoughtfully is the wrong word intentionally mm-hmm. um, where I've been like, Oh, I have to grow my, my EQ and let me think about how to do it. I think that I've been fortunate enough to have a number of experiences that you can't unsee them. So I think that mm-hmm. um, when I was at the United States digital service, we did a lot of guerrilla user research where we would, because it was too complicated to get approval to do structured research government doesn't have money to test things in a lab, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of like, okay, fine, we'll just take this prototype and run out to Reagan National Airport and ask 20 people what they think. There is nothing like that, (laughs) an experience like that to remind, like, these are the people, here they are. And especially when you are working with the federal government, really, all the people are your people (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, in general. So I think that there's nothing like doing guerrilla user research. I highly recommend it for anybody who, even if you are working you know, in Silicon Valley or at a very well-funded agency, I think there's nothing like running out onto the street or to an airport <laughs> or a train station and asking 20 people what they think about whatever it is that you're designing. I think that's an amazing experience. Another thing that I learned to do at USDS was to... Go to the stuff, this is, I don't know how to describe this exactly, but to do the things that surrounding what your users might be doing. So for example, I worked on the immigration system and I went and spent a lot of time talking to the officers who conduct the immigration interviews to understand what was happening in those interviews and what they're looking for and to really appreciate like, oh, so this is how the person who's conducting the interview sees it and what they're looking for. And then on the other side, you have the person who is applying for citizenship and what they're looking for. And you have to see those two people as people in order to Mm -hmm. start to abstract that process, which is Mm -hmm. weird. But having the details in mind of who those people are while you abstract up is very powerful. And then the other thing that I will say on this topic is that another thing I did while I was also working on the immigration system was I went to a naturalization ceremony, mm-hmm. which was not obviously part of the project, but it was a thing that we were invited to do. And I thought, well, that's cool. That's like the end, the end stage of, you know, you've been through the immigration system and now you're going to become a citizen. It was, again, I cried. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's these things that are incredibly moving. And that where you get to see these little slices of life that otherwise you never would, that are, I think are so impactful. One other thing, and then I will stop talking, but um, continue. I, I was writing up a story on the work that had been done in Phoenix to improve recycling rates, where they were looking at what behavioral nudges they could use and like, how could they simplify the process and taking into account that, you know, people are recycling while they might be also working two jobs and having multiple kids and all mm-hmm. of these things. And so people aren't not recycling because they hate the earth. They're <laughs> not recycling because they got a lot of other stuff on their plate. Um, yeah. And so they had successfully managed to increase recycling rates 
which was a cool story. And so I went out and I mm. met the people who were involved in that and learned about how they did it. And then they took me to the dump. And again, I think this is sort of like the end process of like the dump in Phoenix is an hour outside of the city. You have to drive through like miles and miles of desert, nothing. Mm. And so part of what they were trying to fix actually was they have to put these long haul, the garbage on long haul trucks to schlep it out of the city to bury it in the desert and then nothing else can ever grow on it. And so when you're standing there and like looking at miles and miles of garbage, Mm. it is again, this experience where you're like, everybody should go to the dump. Everybody needs to go to the dump immediately now. Like how is that not part of our civic education? Because it's again, like such an emotionally affecting experience to just see all of the garbage that we produce currently. Mm -hmm. And that like, we're going to run out of space. So my point being that I think these little weird experiences that aren't like necessarily right in the meat of the project, but you're getting to see a slice of the world that you wouldn't get to see, or you are seeing like the end result of the process that people are trying to fix is fascinating. And again, like things that you can't unsee. I think you also have this like innate curiosity to do all those things in the first place. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's this beautiful story of empathy that you've shared that's, okay, I'm going to put myself in these shoes and then I'm really going to feel this and like honoring what I'm feeling and, oh my God, this dump and then it's an hour outside the city and it's horrifying and people should be recycling and let's just throw in composting while we're at it. But what's before that, my mind with everything works in, in user journeys. There's something that brought you there in the first place, which is a curiosity of what someone is experiencing. One of my guides generally in my career has been to say yes to everything and figure Mm -hmm. out how to do it later. So (laughs) when somebody said to me, would you like to go to the dump and we might be able to sneak you in to like do maybe five minutes on the forklift? I was like, hell yes, I want to do that. (laughs) Drive an hour outside the city to look at garbage, sign me up. (laughs) Amazing. Which then there's also elements of trust in yourself and trust in your career of where you're at. There's a lot of pieces working there, but the word that's coming to mind is cool. It's nice to be able to reflect on your career in through this lens and see of, okay, this was this guidepost for this reason. This was this guidepost for this reason. And being able to lean into this curiosity, trust that, okay, yes, sure, let's go for it. And have the courage to do so because there's, I've spoken with many, many people who are navigating and growing their emotional intelligence and taking that first step of, okay, sure, I'll even be on the garbage site. Ah, Maybe that's a little scary or having the courage to do so is also, I feel like a underlying tone in much, much, much of what you've said. So acknowledge yourself for that too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I guess I hadn't really thought about it, but I definitely think that the curiosity piece has been a big piece of my career and part of why I decided early on that I wanted to do consulting of some kind, because I just love the opportunity. Even back in the day when I was working for Anderson Accenture, I just loved the opportunity to see all these little slices of life that you wouldn't otherwise. And whether it was, you know, how people answer the phone at the Perrier call center or how Fannie Mae works. All these different experiences that are just, yeah, I just think it's cool. I just, I want to see all the things. So, (laughs) 
based on your experience researching different problem areas. When we were chatting a bit, you gave an example of lip gloss and cancer diagnosis. If there's different elements of emotional intelligence needed for researching different problem areas. For sure, in the public sector, you need a different level of emotional intelligence. You need to be able to go back to the well. And so you need to be very careful about not depleting your own resources. And I think that that's actually kind of the next phase of the field that I'm in is it's one thing to be conducting research on lip gloss. And that's something that at the end of the day, you can be like, that's interesting and go on with your life. When you're in the public sector, I think you're in a very challenging situation because very often what you're doing is listening to stories about how people needed help and didn't get it. And it's very, very difficult to hear those stories and then go back to the office and see that how hard it is to make the wheels turn to get the people the help that they so desperately need and are entitled to and should have. But, you know, because they first have to fill out a 40 page form and go to the Mm -hmm. office four times with different paperwork to drop off because you can only do it in person and business hours. It's a different, it's just a different level. And one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately actually is we see researchers and designers burn out all the time in this field because they are exposed to stuff that's really hard to take and they have to do it for several days or weeks or however long the project is. And then they have to go back and see that there is really only a little bit that they can do, that the problems are so immense and so tangled up that it's going to be a long process to get people to where they should be. So I've thought a lot about like, how do we protect ourselves and care for ourselves in a way that allows us to get back up and do the work again. It's not a good plan (laughs) to be like, here's some stuff we really know, go do it. You're going to be totally burnt out. You're going to be like a complete emotional wreck um, for, you know, a couple weeks, maybe months. And then, and then you'll do it all over again. That's not a great sell. Yeah. (laughs) I think that this is sort of the next area of growth for public interest technology is figuring out how to care for ourselves while we do the work. Yeah. From my perspective, you touch upon a a few things. So as these designers or researchers or maybe anyone in the public sector who's interacting with these very intense draining scenarios, it's one having awareness of what's coming up for you day in and day out and honoring what you're experiencing and not pushing it down and being like, "Ah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But in so many ways, it's a practice of resilience, an act of resilience and seeing, to your point of what you said, how can I ensure to keep my own cup filled while I see this really, really intense stuff? And maybe that means making your favorite tea when you get home (laughs) or doing something really little at the end of each day or at the beginning of each day or listening to your favorite song in the morning on the way to work or listening to this podcast because maybe it's your favorite too. Whatever it may be to weave in these little moments of joy to make sure that these heavy moments aren't, aren't as draining and it's not belittling them in any way, but really honoring, okay, how can I best show up as myself to then thus support the situation at hand. Yeah. And I think that 
designers and researchers can probably, and well, and to your point, anyone who is on the team, there are fields where people do this every day and that's part of the practice. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're a state trooper and you're responding yeah. again, like you probably, you know, you're responding to people on their worst day and mm-hmm. then you go home and have dinner. So I think that it is worth also looking to other fields for like, what pieces can we take? Do they have some, and who knows, maybe state troopers don't have <laughs> resilience training, but <laughs> it seems like they should. So yeah. are there things that we can take from other fields to protect ourselves? We've touched on before, like the first piece is acknowledging that what you heard was really hard to hear and that maybe you just need to go home and go to sleep. And like, that's just what has to happen so that you can get up and do it again tomorrow. Or maybe you need, you know, whatever it is. I think step one is saying, this is not normal. People aren't meant to be able to process this kind of emotional load day in and day out. Yeah. Switching gears a a little bit. I'm curious if you can share a bit about your new book, Power to the Public. Power to the Public came out in April of this year. I co-authored it with Tara McGinnis, who is my colleague at New America. And we wrote it during the pandemic, (laughs) which um, was an experience. It's called The Promise of Public Interest Technology. And it is about what we see as the evolving practice of public interest technology, which we define as the use of data design and delivery in the service of solving public problems in the digital age. So it's really a practice that borrows a lot of methods that have been used in the private sector for decades and applies them to problems in the public sector. So we share a lot of case studies around things like how a team in Rockford, Illinois, ended veteran homelessness and then ended homelessness completely. They reached zero simply by getting the right people in the room and creating a spreadsheet where actually they went one by one down the list of everybody who was experiencing homelessness in the area. They created a by name list and then they were Mm -hmm. able to, on an individual basis, to look into how every single person was doing, why they were experiencing homelessness, what they needed to get a house. And they discovered that one of the big interventions, policy interventions, was that was creating a free bus pass because they discovered Mm. that one of the reasons that one of the things that led to veteran homelessness was that people didn't have the funds to pay to go to their doctor's appointments. They would Mm -hmm. miss doctor's appointments, then they wouldn't be able to fill their prescriptions, they would go off their medication, and they would become homeless. So the city of Rockford created a policy, they created a pilot first to test whether free bus passes for veterans would change the homelessness numbers, and they did. Mm. So that is now the policy in Rockford. And then they went, you know, and so it's basically, they looked systematically, okay, why is this person homeless? What could we do? So a lot of stories like that, stories also about how it's not all about technology. We tell a story about how the state of Rhode Island managed to improve their child welfare system with staple. A staple was the intervention that was needed. So in part, we wrote the book because we saw this practice emerging. And I think that when you see something emerging and it doesn't have a name, the way to make it a real thing is to name it. Um, So (laughs) 
we wrote the book in part to just give it a name to say, look, there are a lot of different teams all across the world who are using the same approach. It's not an accident. It's actually this new practice and this new field that is emerging. Um, It's a new way of solving problems that hasn't been widely used in the public sector. And we think it's time. And I'm curious how emotional intelligence is relevant to the approach in the book that you're describing. I actually think that the book could possibly be considered to be like 98% about emotional intelligence and why it's so critical to bring that to your projects and to see the people, to see that an app is never going to fix homelessness. It's not like, oh, where's the technology that's going to fix this problem? Oh, there it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's not just about implementing. It's about my co-author hates it when I say this because I'm, so I'm the private sector part of the duo and she's, my background is 25 years in the private sector and she's the public sector person. So I always use the expression, eat their own dog food. And she's like, I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what that means. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, I worked in advertising. Everyone there knows what it means, I think. But how important it is for people in the private sector to eat their own dog food, to try to access their own services. That is something that happens in the private sector routinely. And it's not how the public sector is set up. A lot of the book is just showing that if you just tweak a couple things and get the system designers closer to the people, that good things happen. We actually tell a story in the book about Abraham Lincoln and how he, how President Lincoln used to open the doors to the White House almost like once a month or once a week to hear from his constituents. And people mm-hmm. would line up to tell him what they needed and what their problems were. And that is an amazing form of hearing from your users, talking to the people, hearing the ground truth. Of course, that's not doable in today's world, but there are a lot of other versions of that. So. Um, we're trying to infuse that in the public sector's approach to problem solving. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm going to shift to a couple closing questions. Everything that we spoke of today falls in the umbrella of EQ or emotional intelligence. And I'm curious, based on your experience, why it's important for designers to invest in their EQ. Part of design is responding to the world around you. At its base, when you think about things that are not well designed, it's not performing the thing that people need them to do. And, you know, I think about my coffee maker in part because, so I have a friend who does reviews for CNN. And so she'll have like 14 coffee makers that they send her and, and then she just gives them away. And so she was like, do you want a coffee maker? And I said, actually, I do need a coffee maker but give me one of the better reviewed ones. So she did. And I hate it. It's, I was just thinking about it this morning that like the design process must've been like, how can we make it as impossible as possible for people to make coffee without spilling it? It spills constantly everywhere. There's nothing I can do every morning. There's a mess of coffee. Did the people who designed that coffee maker think about what people's state of mind is when they're making coffee. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems like rule number one, when you're making a coffee maker is consider that the people who are going to be using your product are not caffeinated and are going to have a really short fuse. So I think that it's this need for EQ for designers is, I don't think you can do the work without it, whether you're designing a coffee maker or the nation's immigration system. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. And one last question. If you could ask one thing of the audience, so something that they could maybe get started on today or this week or after they're listening to this episode in relation to anything that we really spoke about today, what would it be? I'm tempted to say that everybody should do guerrilla user research at least once in their life because it's such an amazing experience. And I think it's also just an exercise in confidence. And I think it's a great skill for researchers to develop, to be able to approach people in a way that is not scary or frightening or off-putting, but to really check that the way you're approaching your users is open and inviting. So I guess I'm going to say, do some guerrilla user research. You'll never forget it. You heard it here, folks. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hana, for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation and love to hear your, your story. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you're curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.